I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The FT be careful, another cautious fund is launching, just after a record fine was imposed for mis-selling these misnomers. Another week, another set of rules from Europe, and these could cut your pension. And as another three-quarters of a million become higher-rate taxpayers, we explain how to avoid the 40% rate. All this to come in this week's FT Money Show. I'm Matthew Vincent, so I'll be giving you the lowdown on all of these money matters in downloadable form with my colleagues from FT Money, Alice Ross. Hello. And Steve Lodge. Hello. And our special studio guest, Tom McPhail, Head of Pensions Research at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Hello. So let's start with the money news. It was only two weeks ago that the Financial Services Authority imposed its largest ever fine for mis-selling so-called cautious funds, ordering Barclays to pay £7.7 million plus £59 million in redress to savers who lost money. Already, the Investment Management Association is reviewing the definition of the cautious managed fund sector because it can include products that are predominantly invested in equities. And only last week, the FSA proposed preemptive intervention on use of product names that imply greater levels of safety or return than are actually possible. So, amid all of these concerns, you'd think that the last thing anyone would try to launch is another cautious managed fund. Um, Alice, surely nobody would be trying to do that right now, would they? <laughs> You'd think, wouldn't you? Um, but in fact, one of the biggest banks in the country has come out and launched a cautious managed fund this week. RBS has launched a cautious managed and a balanced managed fund, um, which is really bizarre, I think, for a number of reasons. Um, first, as you say, Barclays was only fined um, this huge record fine last week um, after uh, selling some of these products to elderly clients who obviously didn't really understand what they were buying, thought it was a cautious fund. Then the fund fell 40% in value during the credit crunch and they all complained and now they're you know getting compensation, which is great. Um, but then the FSA said, actually, you know, well, we don't like products that are that have these kind of names. They haven't said specifically cautious, but they have said, um, as you say, anything that implies a level of safety that isn't you know, greater than possible, which to me seems like it must be cautious. That it we're has, still to, looking it at has to be referring to exactly that. Exactly. I mean, we know that they're looking at absolute return, which is a similar kind of thing, but cautious has to be in there as well. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's quite surprising. I mean, what RBS has said is that they, they've changed the name slightly. So they have called the funds volatility controlled. 
So we have the volatility controlled cautious fund and the volatility controlled balanced fund. Now, what what they mean by that exactly, I haven't worked out yet. They have this great phrase um, in terms of how they're going to control the volatility. Let me just read it out because it's quite funny. The bank will be using a unique combination of strategies around diversification, trend analysis and volatility control to deliver its new propositions. But every fund manager says, I can control volatility. Yeah. Uh, and all funds with a sort of cautious mandate will have to have volatility as one of, one of their one of their measures. So I can't see how this differs enormously from other cautious managed funds. And presumably it can also have large holdings in equities. Yeah, well, basically the, the initial um, equity holding of the cautious managed fund that they've shown me on this little pie chart is over 50% in equities, which is already, I don't think, very cautious. Um I've asked them what the maximum it can go to in equities is, and I imagine that it's larger than this initial 51% in equities. So I think already, I I don't think that's most people's idea of what cautious is. Volatility, they say that it's going to be half as volatile as some other cautious managed funds. Do investors really understand that? I mean, I don't think the average investor on the street will understand if they talk about half as volatile as other, other funds. I don't think it's just not I mean, the whole point of what the FSA is trying to do about making product names more understandable is is cut out some of this jargon. And I don't think calling a fund volatility controlled is is that accessible, really. And the other thing about um, about the FSA's role in all of this is that you know we've heard um, sort of whispers about the FSA talking to fund management groups before they launch a fund and advising them not to use names like absolute return. Mm. But you'd think that if they were worried about cautious manage, they might also be having a word to fund managers, and yet they've approved this RBS fund. They've obviously approved the RBS fund, um, perhaps because it has this prefix volatility controlled. So, you know, they could say that they're trying to make it more cautious. But it's very surprising. I mean, you know, we're trying to find out at the moment what exactly is going on here. And just finally, the Investment Management Association has been having this review mm. of the cautious managed sector. That's still ongoing, I imagine. It's ongoing. Um, They started the review in August last year, and they're expecting to have something to say on the matter by the end of this year, so a pretty long review. There's a long review. And in the meantime, I wouldn't be surprised if yet more cautious funds were launched. Um, Thanks very much for that, Alice, and for for more on this new RBS fund and indeed the uh, concerns about misleading fund names, look out for Alice's latest report in the money section of this weekend's FT and on our website at ft.com forward slash money. Still to come on the show, if you've become a higher rate taxpayer for the first time, we have some tips on cutting your tax bill. First, though, pensions. Recent weeks have seen much discussion of the European Commission's Markets in Financial Instruments Directive, please try to stay awake as I mentioned that, which, among other things, threatens to ban execution-only share dealing. But if you thought that our European chums had now run out of ways to interfere in our finances, you'd be wrong, because next month the European Court is to rule on whether the lower annuity income paid to women in retirement, because they live longer than men, amounts to unfair gender discrimination. If the court rules that it is unfair, it could wipe hundreds of millions of pounds off the income paid out to UK pension investors, and men approaching retirement could even see a sudden cut in their prospective income as annuity rates are withdrawn. So, Tom, does this really mean that the European court thinks it has the power to overrule, well, the laws of nature? 
Well, the European Court is taking the view, uh, or may, sorry, I stress may be taking the view, that um, to use gender as a differentiator, as a way of determining someone's life expectancy, is discriminatory and should be banned. Uh, and if they do come to this conclusion and we're expecting the judgment, the final judgment, on the 1st of March, if they do come to this conclusion and expectations are that they may well do so, then from that day we may have to work on simply unisex annuity rates. What would that mean? It would mean that men's annuity rates would fall, uh, and potentially fall quite substantially, 5 to 10%. We might see a modest uplift in the rates paid to women, but it wouldn't be a, a, a balancing uh, trade-off. The, the, the men would lose substantially more than women would gain as, an, as the annuity companies try to, to control the risks that they would then be exposed to of writing too much annuity business on these new unisex rates with women who, for the insurance companies, are not an attractive risk because they live longer. So we're waiting to hear what the European Court has to say, and we could then have on one day an immediate shift across to unisex annuity rates. And understandably, this is causing some concern. Um, we're already talking to, to our male clients who are coming up to retirement and alerting them to this fact that, that if they're going to buy an annuity, they might want to get on with it because we don't know what will happen. But if we get this judgment, their income could drop. But if you take this argument or the European uh, court argument to its extreme, in other words, you're not allowed to discriminate on any grounds whatsoever... What about um, health considerations? Some annuities will pay you more at present if you know, your health is not quite so good. But if you're not allowed to discriminate on those grounds, surely everyone will just end up with exactly the same annuity rate, and it'll be rubbish. There was a specific preoccupation with the court around gender discrimination. This could lead on to age discrimination, and, and then it would get really quite challenging if, if we can't differentiate between a 55-year-old and a 75-year-old who's looking to buy an annuity. And clearly, they have very different life expectancies. We could go in one of two directions with this. Possibly, if we get this ruling, possibly all insurance companies will say, fine, well, if we can't differentiate on gen gender, we'll look at everything else. We will underwrite you as an individual, look at your BMI, look at your your medical history, and come to a, a conclusion based on that information of your life expectancy. Or we could go in completely the other direction and just have one big pool of annuitants with one price for everybody. But the risk with that is if we go down that road and, and we seem to be edging in that direction, the price will not be attractive. And I think the risk coming out of this is that we'll just end up with annuity rates that don't look good and people will then choose not to buy annuities and they'll go into more risk-based products as, as a way of paying retirement income. Tom, this is not just about annuities, this is in life expectancy. I mean, I think there are different experiences of men and women claiming on health insurance, car insurance, and so on. So, I mean, is the court thinking of getting rid of gender as a differentiator across all insurance? Potentially, yes. Now, clearly, as head of pensions research, I see that pensions are far more important than any other form of financial product. But yes, this could extend to car insurance as well. And as we know, young men are something of a hazard on the roads. Um, and it may be that car insurers will no longer be able to differentiate on gender and will have to price car insurance for men and women on, on the same basis. So the, the, the implications of this are very wide-reaching. One thing we don't know is, is, is we understand that if they make this judgment, it could come in that day. So the very next day, all the rates would have to move. It's possible they will give us a transition period, but we have no certainty over that. And clearly, therefore, 
all the insurance companies are very, very nervous about where they might find themselves on the 2nd of March and how they're going to deal with the, the business implications if, if, if this does come in. So if you are a, a man who's approaching retirement uh, in the next sort of weeks and months, um, is it really a good idea to try to lock into a rate before 1st of March, just in case? Or is there a chance that by buying an annuity now when you know, rates, rates aren't good generally... Um, you may be unnecessarily committing yourself for the rest of your retirement. It's a very good question. I think there is a wider question of how you deal with uh, the risk of, of particularly of inflation and also of, of longevity. Let's put it this way. If I were a 65-year-old man and I had made the decision that I wanted to buy a lifetime annuity and I was setting off down that road of, of, of making that purchase, I would get on with it. Yeah. And I would, I would try and get, complete the transaction before the 1st of March just in case. That's pretty definitive. Tom, thank you very much indeed uh, for that. And for more on the effect on annuity rates, you can read an article by our colleague Joe Cumbo in the money section of this weekend's FT and on our website at ft.com forward slash money. And finally today, 40% tax. When the new tax year begins on April the 6th, 750,000 people will wake up to find themselves paying higher rate tax for the first time. It's all because Chancellor George Osborne has lowered the income level at which the 40% tax rate applies. And according to calculations by the Institute for Fiscal Studies, another 850,000 could be paying higher rate tax by 2015. But if you are over the threshold of £42,000, there are ways to bring your income back into the basic 20% tax band and make good use of your money into the bargain. So, Steve, for those people who are already through the threshold or about to go through it, what sort of things can they do? Well, Matthew, yes, just to cover off those numbers, I mean, currently there are 3 million of us who pay high rate tax, going up, if you like, in simple terms to 4 million uh, from next year, which is back to sort of the peak levels of just before the recession. And as you rightly point out, the IFS is saying it could be nearer 5 million very soon. Um, the obvious way of avoiding this or, or wiping out your high rate liability that we've all heard about is pensions. Now, most of most of these high rate taxpayers, of course, will be uh, if they're in work, um, they will be in a workplace pension scheme. So they're already getting a bit of uh, high rate tax relief there. And of course, their pension contributions themselves benefit from basic rate relief within the fund itself. Many of these higher owners, of course, will make charitable donations, um, but not everyone makes them tax efficiently, make them tax efficiently through typically through a gift aid type scheme. And again, you can get that high rate tax relief back. Um, so that's, if you like, the kind of standard fare. But the really big stuff where you can mop up that huge gap, if you like, between the high rate threshold and your salary is by topping up your um, a personal pension, typically, or indeed topping it up through your, through your workplace. And the numbers can be really quite attractive. We, we've got an example in this weekend's paper of someone who is on a salary of £65,000. They've also got a bit of savings income as well, so let's call it £66,000. Now, assuming they're a member of the workplace pension scheme, make a little bit of charitable donation, and if on top of that they put £14,800 into a personal pension, then they can wipe out their entire high-rate liability, cut the tax bill by £4,500, and to boot, including the workplace pension, bump up their overall pension by about £29,000. And of course... Pension fund, I should say. Well, exactly. And, and that boost to the pension uh, by uh, paying more into both a company and a personal scheme would, of course, cost them 
far less than that. Well, indeed, yes. I mean, around about £17,000. Um, because just to sort of remind listeners, I'm sure most people who do contribute to pension will know this, you get basic rate relief typically at source. So put your pound in, it's immediately worth £1.25. The, the key attraction for a higher rate taxpayer is they can claim an extra 25, an extra £250 for each £1,000 um, they put into their pension, normally back through their tax return. So that's where you cut your tax bill. Exactly. And, and, and you have to um, remember to, to get your tax relief in the right way through the right mechanism. Obviously, you know, if you're on a company scheme, you haven't got to worry about it because it's taken care uh, yeah. of itself, really. Um, but people are going to have to make more use of their tax returns if they're going to do this. Yes. I mean, everyone always thinks filling in a tax return is a bad thing. I mean, as I think I've said before, I think they're a brilliant idea because they actually put right all the nonsenses by HMRC all the complications, they basically force you to do a sort of annual balance sheet, if you like, or annual profit and loss account. Um, and um, they pull in all these different reliefs because a lot of a lot of charitable donations are not uh, done on a tax-efficient basis. Um, so the charity only gets a bit of your tax back, but the rest is lost. High-rate taxpayers are not giving any more to charity than basic-rate taxpayers. They can, though, claim back the high-rate relief themselves. On the but on the pension side, bizarrely, a lot of people who do save into pensions, and I'm sure Tom might back this up, um, some of them won't claim the high rate relief because they'll think I'm being clever by not filling in my tax return. Yes. So I hope you did your tax return uh, earlier this week and claimed all of those things um, if you're listening. And if you'd like to know exactly um, how it's possible to wipe out a 40% tax bill in the way that Steve described. Look out for that graphic that's going to appear in the money section of this weekend's FT. That's all we have time for in this week's FT Money Show. Remember, you will find weekday news updates and all of these stories on the website, ft.com forward slash money. And if you have a question that you'd like us to answer about any aspect of your finances, just email us. The address is money at ft.com. Next week, we'll bring you another financial lowdown in downloadable form. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from Steve, Alice, and our special studio guest, Tom McPhail from Hargreaves Lansdowne. Goodbye. goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.